Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is October 17th, 2023, and I'm your skeptical host, Dennis Wren. The title of today's podcast is, And It Was All Yellow, Nasal Discharge and Antibiotics in Pediatric Sinusitis. Our guest skeptic today is Dr. Alistair Monroe who is a clinical research fellow specializing in pediatric infectious disease at the University of Southampton. He's currently involved with clinical trials of vaccines and antibiotics. And Alistair, I understand that you had a very recent development. Would you like to share with us? Yes, thank you. I'm very pleased to announce that I just passed my PhD viva yesterday, and so I'm a, a very newly minted PhD person. Doctor, I guess. Doctor, but I'm already a doctor. A doctor, doctor now. So, Allie, if I may call you Allie, you are already more of a doctor than I am based off of that. Oh, well, in, yeah, in some ways, <laughs> possibly not in other ways. All right, sir. Let's start off with our case. Great. So, the case is a four year old girl presents to your emergency department with fever and nasal drainage. Her vaccinations are all up to date, which is good. Symptoms have been present for the past 12 days, and she initially had some cough and congestion, which was diagnosed as a viral upper respiratory tract infection by her primary care doctor. Her symptoms have unfortunately persisted, and yesterday she developed a fever with a temperature of 38.3 degrees centigrade and nasal drainage. On physical examination, she has nasal congestion with yellow-coloured nasal discharge. The family says to you, She's been sick for almost two weeks, and the colour of her nasal drainage changed to yellow. Does this mean she has a bacterial infection that needs antibiotics? Ooh, a fantastic question, Allie. And I think I also heard you make a little nod towards vaccinations. And, you know, we're all about vaccines. Vaccines cause adults. We all love vaccines. All right, but we digress. Distinguishing between sinusitis and viral upper respiratory infections in children is challenging. The symptoms often overlap, and I can count on one hand the number of times I've made a diagnosis of sinusitis in the emergency department. What about you, Allie? I am trying to think of a single case of sinusitis that I've diagnosed in the emergency department. I think I have made diagnoses outside of the emergency department, but in my shifts in ED, I'm struggling to recall a case of sinusitis in particular. Yeah, absolutely. So not something that we diagnose often. And the latest clinical practice guidelines from the American Academy of Pediatrics on diagnosing and managing acute bacterial sinusitis in children was published all the way back in 2013. Now, based on those guidelines, a presumptive diagnosis of bacterial sinusitis can be made when a child with URI symptoms has persistent illness, worsening course, or severe onset. But this recommendation only has an evidence quality of B. Now, we don't routinely perform sinus aspiration on children, but We think that the most common pathogens involved in sinusitis include streptococcus pneumoniae, Haemophilus influenza, or Moraxella catalis, which are the common upper respiratory tract bacteria. 
Untreated sinusitis is associated with complications. They're not common, but they do occur. Things like preceptal cellulitis or orbital cellulitis. And in bad cases, I guess what we really worry about is intracranial involvement. So things that include uh, cavernous venous sinus thrombosis, um, osteomyelitis, meningitis, or even intracranial abscesses. Oh, that is some scary stuff. Absolutely. But... Of course, I am an infectious disease fellow, and so I am all for antibiotic stewardship. So we also don't want to be prescribing antibiotics for viral illnesses that aren't going to respond. But, but Ali, I love giving everyone in the ED my favorite cocktail of vitamin C, which is not actually vitamin C, but ceftriaxone. Should I not be doing that? Definitely not. Please do not do that. In fact, this issue was covered on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine, number 263. We need to be thinking about implementing strategies that can help reduce unnecessary prescribing of antibiotics in the emergency department. Okay, I definitely agree with you on that. So what is the clinical question we're asking today? So I guess the question we're really asking is, what are the potential benefits and harms of antibiotic treatment for children diagnosed with acute sinusitis And does it depend on the bacterial pathogen colonization or color of nasal discharge? And what's our reference? Our reference today is Sheikh N. et al. Identifying children likely to benefit from antibiotics for acute sinusitis, a randomized clinical trial published in JAMA, July 2023. All right, let's move on to our PCOT questions. What was the population that they included? The population in this study was children aged 2 to 11 years who had persistent or worsening acute sinusitis, defined as per the AAP practice guideline, and a symptom score of nine or above on the paediatric rhinosinusitis scale. This scale ranges from zero to 40 with higher scores representing more severe symptoms. And we'll provide a graphic of the paediatric rhinosinusitis scale in our show notes. Now, they did exclude severe presentations, which was defined as the presence of both colored nasal discharge and fever greater than or equal to 39 for three or more consecutive days. If they had a history of asthma, active wheezing, only cough, immotile, cilia syndrome, and the list goes on. So we will include that in our show notes as well. And what was the intervention? The intervention was a full 10-day course of amoxicillin with its best friend, clavulanic acid. And the comparison? This study was matched to a placebo as the comparator. Okay, let's get into the outcomes here. What was their primary outcome? So the primary outcome was the uh, symptom burden measured by the pediatric rhinosinusitis score during the first 10 days after diagnosis. And what about their secondary outcomes? Well, there happen to be many secondary outcomes, including treatment failure, but we'll put the rest of them in the show notes. And they had some safety outcomes as well, right? Can you tell us about those? Yeah, these are important. So um, the safety outcomes included finding a non-susceptible pathogen at follow-up, looking particularly at strep pneumoniae and haemophilus influenzae, and then clinically significant diarrhea, which they define as being three or more watery stools for one day or two watery stools on two consecutive days, looking at the presence of a rash and other resource utilization or missed work days. And what type of study was this? This is one of my favorite kinds of study. 
which is a multi-center, double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized clinical trial. Hey, I like many of the words associated with this trial. Now, the authors concluded, quote, in children with acute sinusitis, antibiotic treatment had minimal benefit for those without nasopharyngeal bacterial pathogens on presentation, and its effects did not depend on the color of nasal discharge. Testing for specific bacteria on presentation may represent a strategy to reduce antibiotic use in this condition, end quote. All right, let's move on to our quality checklist. First question. Did the study population include or focus on those in the emergency department? No, it did not. In this study, the children were recruited from primary care offices. And I think that makes sense, right? Because we talked earlier on in the show how rare we make this diagnosis in the emergency department. So they probably make more of this diagnosis of sinusitis in the primary care office. Second question, were the patients adequately randomized? Yes, there was adequate randomization procedures. Was the randomization process concealed? It was indeed, yes. Were the patients analyzed in the groups to which they were randomized? Yes, they were. Were the study patients recruited consecutively? This one's a bit less clear. It says that the researchers attempted to enroll consecutive children, but whether that is or is not what happened was not clearly described in the paper. And were the patients in both groups similar with respect to prognostic factors? Yes, indeed they were. And were all of the participants, the patients, clinicians, outcome assessors, unaware of group allocation? They were indeed. They did a really nice job with masking all these groups in the study. Do you think that all the groups were treated equally except for the intervention? Yes, it very much appears that they were. And was follow-up complete? Yes, follow-up was a very thorough for, for both groups. Were all patient-important outcomes considered? Yeah, I think they did a really good job of thinking about all of the benefits and potential risks of the treatments. Was the treatment effect large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? Well, that is an important question, and I think we'll talk a bit more about this in the Talk Nerdy section. Ooh, I'm looking forward to that. And final question, were there any financial conflicts of interest? There were some potential conflicts of interest, yes. So um, multiple doctors received grants or consult for pharmaceutical companies, uh, and Dr. Hoberman has patents for amoxicillin clavulanate with the same company. Okay, and just because these conflicts of interest exist does not mean that the study results are not valid. We just have to be maybe a little bit more skeptical. All right, let's move on to the results. So there were close to 3,000 children screened and 515 randomized. Around 60% of those were aged 2 to 5 years old, and most, around 70%, were included because they had persistent symptoms. Two-thirds had colored nasal discharge, and around 70% had some kind of pathogen detected. Alistair, what was the key result? The key result here is that antibiotics may have a clinical benefit in children with acute sinusitis at the cost of some increased diarrhea, while the detection of a pathogen had little impact and colour of their nasal discharge didn't really matter. 
Okay, let's move on to the primary outcome. What did those PRSS scores show? So for the group who received antibiotics, the mean score was just over nine. And then for the placebo group, it was 10.6. So this led to a between group difference in symptom score of minus 1.69. But when they looked at the subgroups of children who had bacterial pathogens detected versus those who did not, they also noticed some improvement in the scores. Yeah, so in those children with pathogens detected, there was a difference of minus 1.95 in the scores. And in those without pathogen detected, there was still a difference, but a little bit less at minus 0.88. And interestingly, the effects of the antibiotics did not differ significantly between the groups that had clear versus colored nasal discharge. And what about the length of time it took for symptoms to go away? And remember, that was defined as a PRSS score of less than or equal to three. So the the median length of time to symptom resolution was seven days for the antibiotic group compared to nine days for the placebo group. And that was a statistically significant difference with a p-value of 0.003. Okay, moving on to our secondary outcomes. The antibiotic group was less likely to experience treatment failure, develop acute otitis media, or receive additional systemic antibiotics. Indeed, and this meant that treatment failure had a risk ratio of 0.69, and this is equivalent to a number needed to treat of 8 to prevent treatment failure. Those who received another antibiotic had a risk ratio of 0.52 and a number needed to treat of 9 to prevent needing an additional antibiotic. And then in terms of developing complications um, for development of acute otitis media, there was a risk ratio of zero with a 95% confidence interval of zero to 0.48 and a number needed to treat of 32. And this only occurred in 3% of the placebo group. And they also did not see any statistically significant difference in resource use between the two groups. Finally, let's talk about the safety outcomes. We were talking about diarrhea, stuff like that. What did they find, Allie? So reassuringly, there was not a difference in non-susceptible pathogens being detected at the follow-up between the two groups. So this was a risk ratio of 1.16 with a confidence interval of 0.63 to 2.13. And the antibiotic group did have more diarrhea with a risk ratio of 2.4 but there was no significant difference in rash. All right, Allie, are you ready? I am ready. Favorite. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, I can't be excited there. (laughs) That is fantastic. All right, let's talk nerdy. This is my favorite section. First nerdy point is about nasal discharge color. Okay, let's just bust this myth. I've definitely heard people say that colored nasal discharge is associated with bacterial infections in comparison to clear discharge. Now, a systematic review meta-analysis from 2014 in adults did not support this position. Yeah, I mean, this is a really common way of thinking. And I suppose it feels very intuitive to us as clinicians that if something's changed color and it looks more gross it must be more serious or more likely that there's bacteria there, right? Um, But it's interesting that the authors did stratify this study by the colour of nasal discharge because when the symptom score for paediatric rhinosinusitis was made, they actually removed 
the color of nasal discharge from the score due to the inability of parents to be able to very clearly distinguish between the color of the nasal discharge. So I agree. I think it's unlikely this has any bearing on the results. And the correlation with pathogen detection was very poor. Now, the authors found a Pearson correlation of 0.13. Now, a reminder that a correlation of one is perfect positive correlation. So 0.13, definitely a lot to be desired there. So can we please stop perpetuating this myth? Yes, I think it is time for this myth to die. Nasal discharge color is probably completely meaningless in determining whether sinusitis is caused by bacteria or not. Busted. Nerdy point number two is about selection bias. They screened close to 3,000 children and excluded 2,408, which is slightly over 80%. Now, most of these excluded did not meet diagnostic criteria for sinusitis, about 46%. Mm. And the proportion that declined to participate was also relatively high, so about 20% of those excluded. And interestingly, this group that declined to participate had a lower overall PRSS score, so 22 versus uh, 24 in those who did participate. They also excluded a few because they didn't have enough symptoms based on the PRSS score. There are also uh, 4% of those excluded for other reasons, which unfortunately uh, we're not told about what those reasons were. And I have some other thoughts about the PRSS and diagnosis of sinusitis, but we'll get to that in later points. All right, nerdy point number three. Should we perform testing? So it's interesting that quite a high percentage, about 70% of this cohort, uh, including the study, did have some kind of identifiable pathogen detected, which largely, again, strep pneumo, mophilus influenza, and Marxella. And the results, the significant results are driven mainly by this population. The authors did think about whether Moraxella may have been just there as a colonizer rather than being a true pathogen. And so they did run a separate sensitivity analysis. It was just for strep pneumo and haemophilus, which is in supplement two. But there was a much bigger difference in PRSS score, a difference of minus 1.96 with a confidence interval of minus 2.64 to minus 1.28 when they only look for the presence of those two organisms as compared to all three, which had a difference of only minus one with a confidence interval of minus 1.59 to minus 0.42. Now, going back to the primary outcome, remember that whether children had a pathogen detected, both the antibiotic and placebo group did show improvement based on the PRSS. But this was a bigger difference in the group that had pathogens detected. So this does make me pause and go, hmm. Mm, So is it worth an uncomfortable test to start, delay, or stop antibiotics in some children? And I think we'll chat a little bit more about this in the clinical application section. All right, nerdy point number four is about the copper standard. Okay, okay, it's time for us to actually talk about the diagnosis of sinusitis. The gold standard for diagnosing sinusitis is a bacterial culture from a sinus aspiration. Now, obviously, it does not make sense to do this for every single child that we might suspect sinusitis in. So we're left with the clinical practice guidelines that tell us to make a diagnosis based on persistent 
worsening or severe symptoms. But we have to acknowledge that this is an imperfect or copper standard. For example, I think many caretakers who have children in daycare or other child care facilities or even school will say that it seems like their toddler gets sick with upper respiratory symptoms, cough, runny nose, over and over and over and over again to the point where it may feel like they are sick for months at a time. But does that mean they all have sinusitis? They would potentially meet that diagnostic criteria based on persistence of symptoms, but do they all really need antibiotics? I find that unlikely. Yeah, it's a really tricky problem, isn't it? I mean, we think the authors did the best that they could defining the study group that was included, but there is still the possibility that a proportion of these children included were misdiagnosed especially when you consider that most were included, 70%, for meeting criteria for persistent symptoms. And finally, our last nerdy point is about clinical significance versus statistical significance. Now, we've talked about this issue before on the SGM. Just because something is statistically significant does not necessarily mean that it is clinically significant. And in this study, we saw an overall improvement in the PRSS between antibiotic versus placebo group of 1.69 in favor of the antibiotic group. But what does this actually mean? Well, the PRSS score evaluates for stuffy nose, runny nose, daytime cough, tiredness, irritability or fussiness, trouble breathing through the nose, cough in the night, and trouble sleeping at night. These factors are all rated no, almost none, a little, some, a lot, or an extreme amount. Now, I don't know about you, Alistair, but I think I would have trouble distinguishing between some of these like almost none or a little. But that's a one point difference right there. And also these criteria aren't really weighted. So where is my 1.69 points of improvement coming from? I might value being less tired, but I don't think I would make a big deal out of an improvement in my stuffy nose or runny nose from a little to almost none. And we don't know how this improvement was broken down by categories. Yeah, that's right. And I think when it comes to possible harms, it's also important to point out that the side effect of diarrhea might be clinically important for families as it was worse in the antibiotic group with a number needed to harm of 16. All right, Ali, can you comment on the author's conclusion compared to the SGEM conclusion? I think we agree with the author's conclusions. And can you give us the SGEM bottom line? Antibiotics may offer some benefit for mild to moderate sinusitis in children, but at the cost of potential increase in diarrhea. All right, Ali, can you resolve the case for us that you presented earlier on? I can indeed. So you tell the family that their child likely has a viral infection or sinusitis and that the colour of her nasal discharge does not necessarily tell you whether this is a bacterial infection. You engage in shared decision making and talk with the families about the potential harms and benefits of initiating antibiotic therapy. The family expresses that they would like a prescription for antibiotics and you discharge them home. How do you apply this clinically? Are you going to test more? Are you going to prescribe antibiotics more or less? What do you think? 
This study reassures me that most children with sinusitis will recover with or without antibiotics, even when the history has been prolonged and moderately severe. At present, we generally avoid prescribing antibiotics for those with uncomplicated sinusitis in the first instance, and I think I'll continue to recommend this. For children who have moderate to severe sinusitis or with a more prolonged history, this evidence will be really useful to support shared decision-making with parents and children and young people, in particular considering the modest benefit against the relatively common side effects. So, Ali, you're telling me to put away my IV injection of ceftriaxone? Just put it down. Just put it down. Party pooper. All right, what are you going to tell the parent? To the parent, I'm going to say, I'm sorry that your child is still sick. It's hard to know whether her symptoms are due to a virus or bacteria. Giving her fever medications and fluids can help. And another option is to give her some antibiotics. Now, antibiotics don't work on viruses, but antibiotics may decrease how sick she is and how long she'll be sick for. However, it can also cause a runny bum or diarrhea. And there is a risk of allergic reaction. Now, which would you prefer? A running nose or a runny bum? Mmm, definitely something to think about. Well, Dr. Dr. Monroe, thank you so much for joining us on SGMPEDS and talking nerdy with me. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And before we go, can you give us the SGM tagline? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on The Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time.